Hello, and welcome to Startup Hustle with Matt Watson and Matt DeCourcy. have a special guest today, Rachel Qualls from Venture360. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. How's it going today, Rachel? Pretty darn good. Almost Christmas. Life is good. Yeah, how's the hustle? The hustle is, it's rough, man. How's the hustle for you? How did you describe it today, Matt? It was something about an onion? Being a, a startup founder is a lot like an onion. The further you get into it, the more you cry. <laughs> I like the sport of it, so I don't know what that says about me as a person. But I've seen a lot of people crying during sporting events. That's fair. For different reasons. You're a glutton for punishment. I really am. So, Rachel, you're the founder and CEO of Venture360, and the reason we are really excited to have you on the show today is your business does some stuff that will help other startup founders get things done. What are a few of those things? So we help people. We, well, we've designed a lot of tools to help companies organize the fundraising process. And that includes traditional ways of reaching out to angels and VCs and non-traditional things like putting an investor registration link on your website and promoting it through other various channels. So that's what we do. But I like your version of you do stuff. Like we should just stop there. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? I, I oftentimes tell people a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, so Rachel, how did you get into this? I mean, maybe we should start with kind of your journey as a entrepreneur and your background a little bit. So I was a technology entrepreneur, um, and I've started a number of different companies. And one of the limiting factors in the success of those companies was access to capital. So I had a small amount of success and decided a fantastic way to lose my money was to start angel investing all by myself. <laughs> um, and I tell this story and I laugh because I didn't have enough money to move the needle in deals. No one wanted to show me the best deals. And um, leveraging my access to investors became very important for me to do great deals. So that's what I built. Um, I ended up building a service organization that helped angel investors like me pool resources. So we have hundreds and hundreds of investors. Um, and they could pool those resources individually where you control the money or you could pool it into a fund. So we had angel networks and we had funds and that became the angel capital group. Um, once I realized that I was getting in good deals and we were doing lots of deals, it really became, well, now how do I get out of said deals? <laughs> Turns out a whole lot easier to give someone your money than it is to get it back. So the next evolution of what I wanted to build was a market. So I believe, um, as I think any entrepreneur should, whatever you're investing this amount of time and tears into, it needs to be important. Um, or you're not going to have the drive to see it through. So I think it's really important um, for people to invest in the innovation of the future. And like I said, the next evolution I wanted to create was a market for private illiquid securities. So Venture 360 was that dream. It has always been designed to be a market. We just didn't start there. So in order to build a market, we first had to organize how people were doing deals. So we started out as workflow process software. We helped VCs and angels organize the companies who are applying for funding, the people they're taking money from, who's doing what deal as one entity. And that's what we're in the market today. Um, 2018 is when we will finally launch our market. Um, I know we're probably going to get into more of this later, but to kind of, I guess, give the reasoning behind that is, like I said, we started as a market, but we started in 2013 to build a market. But you've been, you've been open doing other things in the interim before the market. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what, a, way what are of, a few of those things and how are, how can they help me as someone who is organizing a fundraising process? And, you know, you talked about 
facilitating and improving the process between angels and actual company founders? Is that through paperwork? Is it through just a general ledger? What do you guys do that helps with some of that? We do all of it. So we try to help companies, whether it's your first capital raise or you're on a series D, like how do you, because nobody likes to raise money. It's, it's hard and it's brutal. So anything that can make that a little bit easier, we feel like is a value add in the market. So we do that with um, one, creating a portal for you to organize the information you're presenting to investors. So a profile with discussions and files and things like that. That profile, you can invite investors in, you can search a global database, you can directly share with the over 3,000 venture funds and angel groups that use Venture360 today. So it depends on how you want to let the market know you're raising funding. And again, so go ahead. So that lets you create a profile and it lets you create basically a deal room. Yep. Right. And then you can share that with um, VC firms or angel groups that are already part of Venture360, right? Or you can share that with just other random people that you find that might invest. Right. So unlike a crowdfunding platform where you're limited to who else is using that platform, with Venture360, it's your platform. It is white labeled for your company. You can, again, connect with people within our community or you can. What I really like about our platform and one of my favorite features is putting a link on your own public facing website where investors can register for more information. So your SEC compliance plus your um, attracting, you know, outside of your usual suspects for investing. So what other kinds of tips do you have for our listeners that are trying to raise capital? Do you have any good tips for them besides to just keep trying? (laughs) (laughs) I think you need to treat it like sales, right? So sometimes in sales, you know, look, some will, some won't. So what? Who's next? Um, The other thing is you need to broaden your market scope. So if you're just going after angels and VCs, you need to know that your chances of getting funding are very slim. So who else is investing? Who else knows about or likes your product? Again, marketing through your website is extremely important and relevant. So one of my tools, I think customers make the best investors. They already know your market. They already know your product. Um, Putting a link on your website and promoting the fact that you're raising funding, again, in an SEC compliant way. And then once they register, they're in your Venture360 platform and you're organizing everything from taking commitments to doing the deal to doing your cap table. So when you were running this angel capital group, what were some of the things you looked at in all the companies that were applying? Because I imagine you had to deal with like hundreds and hundreds of applicants. I actually actually want to add a second part onto that that's very relevant. So uh, you mentioned that the chances of getting funded by an angel group or VC are also really slim. Can you tie some of that in with Matt's question as well about why, why your chances are so small? Your chances are so small because not many people invest in this asset class, first of all. So your pool of potential investors is microscopic. Um, of the 8.5 million accredited investors in the United States who could do these deals, less than 300,000 ever do a deal. So then you're dealing with that. And then you have to rise above the noise of everybody else who's raising money. You're competing with every other company that's trying to raise capital. Right. And and I don't think people ever think about it that way. Yeah. Um, and to your to your point earlier about the amount of money you have when you are trying to invest gave you access to different types of deals, right? And so right. I'm in the same boat. Like a buddy of mine is trying to get me to invest in some company that already produces a lot of profit and we can acquire a business that makes, you know, $3 million a year in profit and we can buy it super cheap. Should I do that or should I invest in some startups that 
90% of them are going to fail, right? So depending on the type of investor, they have access to so many different types of investments. You're competing against all of them. And I don't think people think about it that way. Yeah. And you're, yeah. So, and then it's also about the investor and their, you know, maturation into the space. So the deals that I probably would have done when I was on day one are different than the deals that I would do today. You're a little more gun shy now, probably. Yes. Yeah, that was, um, that was a point I was going to throw in there. I think that, you know, any seasoned investor or someone that's disciplined when it comes to backing anything is like a great hitter in baseball. Like you got to take a lot of pitches and wait for the one that's exactly where you want it, the way you want it, and then you knock it out of the park. And and with that, it takes a little while to learn it. You swing at some bad pitches, you chase some things that, you know, you, you're swinging at that pitch that's in the dirt and you're never going to hit it anywhere, even if you wanted to. But I think some of that comes within experience. Well, I think the angel groups are such a huge resource for the investors and the startups both, because as an investor, I don't have time to deal with all the pitches. I don't have time to talk right. to all these different companies, um, especially if you're not an investor that is very savvy in the industries and stuff that you're talking about. It's just hard to get comfortable investing in any of these things. But if you can work through these groups, you can get a lot more confidence and they'll help filter the good deals down. And it's easy to invest, you know, a few thousand dollars in a whole bunch of different deals, right? And that's uh, that's what an investor should do is make a bunch of small bets. And that's usually the mistake that these investors make is they make one big bet in a really dumb idea instead of making a lot of s smart, small bets. And so I, I think the angel groups help a lot on that side. But then they also help a lot on the the startup side that, you know, that they can be a huge asset from uh connections and raising capital and potential mentors and advisors and board members and all those things that they, they play, play a huge role in the ecosystem. I agree. I agree. Um, one, a, a dynamic that we haven't talked about too, is that, um, you know, once let's say an angel group seeds a deal, that company is going to need more money. And so what you get into is you're getting into deals that are bigger than an angel group of maybe even 20 or 30 wealthy people can manage. So they have to double down. And that's how they get in deeper to these deals is by sort of, you know, what we're not really servicing is the the chain of capital. Um, and that needs to change and that needs to improve. So too. funding is also like an onion. <laughs> the deeper you get into it, the more you cry. Yeah, it hurts it, a lot more when it, you're getting into real money than a few thousand here. One of our early episodes is titled Getting Funded Sucks. And, you know, it was uh, an attempt by Mr. Watson and myself to try to prepare people for what you're going to run into when you go out and just try to raise money. What do you think the number one thing that people do poorly is when it comes to a cap raise? That's a really good question. The one thing that people do poorly, lack of follow-up. So if somebody, you should go into it assuming you're going to get a no sort of, okay. I know that's in some ways bad advice because maybe we should all be overly confident. I think it's but great let's, advice. Let's just assume you're going to get a no. All right. Your follow-up with that investor needs to be meticulous and timely because they may have said no in the short term, but maybe they're dynamic changes. Maybe they have more capital free up, maybe, you know, so keeping them up to date on your progress, your successes, you cultivate sort of a following. Whereas if you keep asking, maybe eventually it'll be a yes. So don't take no as no forever. No is just no for now. What do you consider a reasonable and quality follow-up to be? Is it just an email occasionally? Is it just a, Hey, I just wanted to update you on our progress. Should I text at three in the morning? <laughs> I mean, I can just tell you what I liked as an, a potential investor is that if I said no, 
um, a lot of times, and maybe it's a little like dating. It wasn't really you. It was me. Like maybe we didn't have enough investors at the end of December to pool to do your deal. So I had to tell you, no, maybe it was, you know, a lot of other factors. So um, a newsletter type of email, chances are if they were interested enough, or maybe you were too early or whatever the no reason was, um, a newsletter keeping me updated on your progress, press releases, um, chances are the later stages, stage VCs are stalking you. So I know right now who's stalking Venture 360 to see what kind of traction we get, what our revenues are looking like so that they can pull the trigger at later stage. Some of it's dating, right? Like they said no For on sure. the first date, but you want to keep reminding them why why you're the one they want to do business with, Correct. right? And keeping them up to date and teasing them with your progress. Yeah. Showing perseverance, like all these things that they want to see once they do invest. I asked my wife out for three years before I got a date with her. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you keep keep her up to date on your progress? I kept running. I kept running into her, and uh, yeah, I, I was like, I just wanted to let you know I'm still single, so I'll send you an email in a month letting you know that. See? No, that isn't how it worked. Oh. I kept running into her in different places, and she always had a boyfriend, but I kept asking. So there you go. Eventually, you. I, uh, it's funny because I actually gave up, and then she called me down the road. She was like, "Hey, what's up?" I was like, "Oh, wow." Perseverance. Perseverance. Yeah. So, what are the kind of tips you have for investors? For investors, um, well, again, my goal is to build something that gives people access to really great deals, regardless of your location or your money or whatever else, the ease with which you can do those deals. Um, so it's not 10 months of due diligence and a $15,000 legal bill, right? You can just click a button and get in deals and then make it easy for them to get out of it. So the advice today is a little bit different than what I hope to be able to give once all of this comes to fruition in the future, which is in like any other stock strategy or investment strategy. Today, you're going to have to um, go through a very manual process of leveraging your resources. And I personally believe in doing deals at every stage and putting small amounts of money at every stage. It does sound sexier to do a $3 million profitable company deal, buy it cheap, but, but chances are you're going to have to take an operational role of some capacity. It's not going to be without its headaches. Um, investing 5k in a startup or something that, you know, mentally, maybe it's 5k for you, or maybe it's five, whatever is that threshold of materiality, but, um, get in the sport and start playing. That's how you're going to learn what not to do, (laughs) but do it with amounts of money that are reasonable for you. So should I invest all of my money in Bitcoin? Well, yeah. All of it? (laughs) No. Um, No. Didn't you already do that last week? No, I found that I randomly owned half of Bitcoin. I didn't realize I, did I owned. I you did, did too? You had well, Bitcoin? I, you didn't know I it? Had, well, I had multiple accounts. So I've been a longtime investor in Bitcoin. Um, I say long time. I think I started in like 2014. Um, but yeah, and then I ran into an account that I forgot I even had that had a little less than a half of Bitcoin in it because I'd sold all of it. It's a pretty good thing to find right now. Right? It's like so, finding a used Honda Civic in your drawer. It's sure it's a lot better than finding a couple of nickels and under your couch, right? I know. It's like, <laughs> that is fantastic. And then I promptly sold it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, I, I, I held on to mine. So You did. Well, I have, again, other accounts that I'm still holding on to some. But I think, so if you're investing in Bitcoin, why, why did I invest in Bitcoin in 2014? Because I believe in in the concept of the long-term tale of it and whether or not I ever made money on it. I wanted to be part of that story. So that's why I did it. So it wasn't a short-term trading play for me and never has been. I think some of us, we, we do things because we want to see them succeed, yeah. right? Like, so we invest in Bitcoin because we want to see it succeed. I, whenever I go to restaurants and I can pay with my phone, I always pay with my phone because like, I think that should be the way it should always be done Yes, because I feel like it's more secure. Like, 
one of these days, if you don't, if I don't have my phone, like somebody can't, it's like somebody can steal my credit card number, but they're not going to steal my phone, right? So some of these things, we, we just do them because we want them to be to work. That's almost all I do. I vote with my dollars, period. My investment dollars and my spending dollars. I have a question for you. And I think that one of the things that Startup Hustle is about is the good, the bad, and the ugly. What's something that you really learned from that you didn't do well? You Maybe you still don't do it well. Maybe you do. I just <laughs> oh, something that it's we more can. More than an hour. <laughs> yeah, I get it. That's something that you can pass along to the future founders or people that are just getting started. I didn't manage stress well. Every every little bump in the road felt like the end of my business. And so the older I've gotten and the more mature I've gotten, the more I've learned that it's just temporary. It's okay. It sucks right now. This doesn't have to be company or life. And you know, it's you just kind of have to roll with the punches a little bit more. And I've gotten better at that. Um, Startups are full of turbulence. Yeah. And it just damn near killed me. The stress of, and the weight of, you know, taking investors, I took people's money. Like what if, you know, the weight of that was just tremendous. It's a lot of responsibility. It's an inverted yeah. pyramid when we're talking about corporate structure. I'm the CEO, but I'm at the bottom. Okay. I work for my employees, my investors, and my customers. And again, the weight of that can be very, very heavy sometimes. So my advice and something I wish I did better is just, it's okay. It's all short term. It's all going to be okay. Just got to figure out how to solve the problems and get past it. Move on to the next problem because you know there's the next one. Right. And how... Do you have a, Mr. Watson, do you have a, I could have done something better for this episode? Oh, rephrase the whole question for me. I'll tell you what, while we think about it, one thing I could have done better was getting Gigabook out there faster. Sat on it way too long because I felt that I was busy doing other things that were profitable. What would have changed if you had gotten the market faster, though? Would you be farther along by now? Like, what's. I would have got better customer information and data in order to be able to determine what was really important and what wasn't. Like, during that interim, we built things that were speculative we hope people would use and then they didn't even oh, care about it you overdeveloped for them oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> well we were so busy doing other things you know we had a couple a couple other businesses that were yeah for all intents and purposes printing money and it was easy to just say oh we'll get to that later we'll get to that later well next thing you know one remarkably overly complex platform later we're still trying to untangle that knot a little bit and make things a little easier I think we have a, a little bit at Stackify. I think we have a little bit of a similar problem where we kind of built four or five products, and maybe we should have built one product and focused on that. Um, now, having the four or five is is a strength at this point, but you know it took a lot longer to get here than if yeah, we, we were, we were on mediocre one thing. at five things and not great at any of them. And I think that if we would have just focused on being great at one or two things, it would have been a different story. Well, while we sit here and think about all the things we could have done better, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd love to talk to you about ICOs and your marketplace. Cool. Let's do it. Startup Hustle with Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson online at startuphustle.xyz. We'll be right back. Back to the show. Startup Hustle with Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson online at startuphustle.xyz. And we're back. Startup Hustle with Matt and Watson. Wait a minute. What, 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 where are you going with this? 
I think that's what you originally wanted to call the show, wasn't it? Well, we do need different names instead of Matt and Matt. So I, I think if you're Matt and I'm Watson, that would be good. And we could call it the Matt Watson show. I, I'm all for it. What do you think, Rachel? Oh, yeah. No, that's what you should do. I think that really defines who's who. <laughs> or maybe at least the pecking order here in the studio. Rachel, what is an ICO? An initial coin offering. What the hell does that mean? Right. Nobody knows, but everybody's in. <laughs> that sounds about right lately. <laughs> right. Um, I think the way that we're leveraging tokenization of assets or things of value and creating a marketplace for them is the future. What is tokenization? I just think we're trying to figure it out. Um, tokenization is... Speak to us as if we're five-year-olds or maybe even Labrador retrievers. It's creating... Um, that's a really hard thing. If you guys have anything better while I'm trying well, I think, to put I an think end to layman terms. What you're referring to is partly the blockchain, right? Because the blockchain becomes this distributed journal that everybody has access to. That's is that right. part of it? But the token is the thing of value that the computer recognizes as part of this blockchain. Which right? is your it's your private key, right? It's your private That's cryptography exactly right. key. So a block is a, a defined set of terms, and the token either locks them or doesn't unlock them. So technically, for when we boil this down, that's like a share of stock or something like that. But we don't call it that because then it would need to be SEC compliant. Right. So that's where Venture 360 is going, is that, you know, we track about $5 billion in assets of shares of stock. People own things on our platform. Most of that's mine, by the way. Yeah, we know, buddy. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, society. Um, and so what we're doing is we're turning that into these tokens. But really, so we need to understand that an ICO is not secured by anything. You don't own anything other than that token, right? But as we move into the securities markets, we want people to own actual pieces of stock and own companies. And then you're trading things of value that have value. Right now, an ICO doesn't have any value. So it's not backed by any sort of shares in the company or voting rights or... Mm -mm. So so why the hell would somebody be part of it? Right. Transferability. (laughs) Now, I know there's some of them like... uh, it was like file sharing, some file sharing company that did ICOs. And, and that's, be, and that's because the ICO was like you basically you would rent out space in your computer and you would receive these tokens, but then you could sell the tokens and the people who bought the space paid with the tokens or whatever. So it was kind of a currency. That's like an, that's a different sort of. It's tied to value. Right? That actually has a little bit of value. Tied that's to right. It. So it's a different ballgame when it's, it's tied to some sort of value than if it's. We're doing a coin offering. But if, but if I'm Stackify and I want to give up 10% of my company and turn that part into coins or something, can I do that? Does that make sense? You, as far as right now, you cannot do that um, outside of, again, what something like Venture 360 is building, a tokenization okay, so, of securities that are then traded and SEC compliant. So how would that work then? Um, on Venture 360? Yeah. You'd click a button to tokenize your securities. Um, our technology would do that. We actually, it's backed by Ripple, so it's a bit different than blockchain, but let's not go into the complexities okay. of that. I've heard of Ripple before. Okay. Um, and then that becomes, and basically you define the terms of your market. So who can participate in your market? So because these are private companies, Matt, you might not want just anyone owning voting shares of your company, right? So you're probably going to want to control access. You may not want people trading below a certain threshold. So maybe you don't want your stock to be able to tank. So in Venture 360, 
you will control your own market. And then you'll be able to decide whether or not you want to open that up to everybody to participate or, again, have a very controlled environment. So your so your site would then act as the exchange. That's exactly right. Much like a Bitcoin exchange, but it, this would be an exchange of my stock, and it would be through Venture360. And more importantly, you can take that stock and put it on other exchanges. So okay. although we will be one of the first, we understand that it's most important to be able to have liquidity, and that comes from having more people participate in the market. So you'll be able to take that share. You'll have a mobile wallet or a wallet of some sort, and you'll be able to, you know, trade that share for value of something else. So will they actually keep their private key or whatever it is that kind of represents that? Or is it still more like I have a cap table and I just know that Rachel owns three shares that are digital shares? Both. So you as an individual will be vetted. So by vetted, we're going to, you know, again... There's a lot of legal hurdles that go into doing all this and doing it well, which is what we've been investing the last you know year or so into figuring out. Um, so there's you as the person, and then there's an issuer or a company, and the key and the lock that ties you two together. And then as you trade that, so so I would think the key to this would um, these. So so if I back up for a second, so one of the benefits of publicly traded companies is the companies have to continually report how they're performing. And a lot of the valuations are based on multiples of revenue or multiples of EBITDA or whatever, right? But so is it, in this, well, sort of, right? Is it a value add? So what- But, but, in, the, but in this scenario, well, how will these people know what the value of my company would be, is it's, my point. It's actually the same conceptually as the public market. The, there is only one thing that affects value in the public markets, and it's investor psychology. How much is that other person on the other side of the exchange willing to pay you for that stock? Doesn't matter what the analysts say, these are short-term dip, but it actually doesn't even matter how the company performs. If there's a market crash, everybody's going down together because investors are... But if, but if I'm buying a share of Stackify for $7, how do I know if I'm getting like one billionth of the company or one hundredth of the company, Those right? There's got to be more information somehow. Oh, yeah. Well, that's all in the platform. So uh, There's got to be like a market cap or something that would help. Yeah. So again, Venture 360 started out as workflow process software to build in these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only you know disclosing your cap table, your percentage ownership, but also performance and mm-hmm. things like that are already built into our system. So that's that's why I think that would all that would all be very important. So I could see Venture 360 being kind of a closed, not really closed, but kind of a centralized ecosystem where all that information lives as right. an exchange, the information all the information about my company, but how would that work if there are other exchanges? Like how would all those other exchanges have to know my information? Um, yeah. So it's a bit of a conceptual thing at this point um, where you could take that stock that you own, Matt, of your own company and trade it on some other exchange. Or I guess I'll have to grant access to that information on my site somehow, or then they would could get the information on my site, but they can't buy or sell. Uh-huh. stock to my site. I'm going to guess you'll probably have a plugin on my site that would allow it, would That's be my right. guess. So I have but a question. So when you do an ICO, is that a one-time thing? Like you have to create a finite number of tokens or coins or whatever that that time, or are those able to be diluted? Or so? I think it depends on how you set it up. Um, I just want to keep making tokens over and over again. I think that's kind of like the, that's well, what think, you were asking, like, a, you know, that well, I think that's a great, a great question, right? You know, we just are completing a, our first round of funding at Stackify. We've, we've just finished it up yep. and uh, I did survive it. And so the, so the question then is like, I, I think forward in the future, like, okay, a year from now, maybe we're going to raise a couple more million dollars or whatever, but, you know, leveraging something like this, could I always be sort of raising like 
you know, every, every couple months. So it's not, so like, a, it's kind of like an, an IPO where they're releasing a little bit of stock to sell, right? It's not like the first IPO, but whatever that would be called, kind of secondary, third, fourth. Yeah, they do it all the time. That's how companies who are public raise money. So what, I mean, to me, that would be a big value of this, of continuing to make that available to my investors without it being such a giant process of like a whole round. Exactly. Like, I mean, could that somehow eliminate the having to going and doing a convertible note and trying to pre-sell the round and doing all that crap? Could I just sell a little bit kind of continually through something like this? Yeah. I mean, so that's what we're going to be able to change and evolve. So how private deals are done today, I think we're going to change drastically because they're done as a result of a very inefficient market where investors want to control things. They have to because they don't have liquidity options, you know? So I think we're going to see things kind of turn over on their heads as far as, again, more companies are going to get funded. Hopefully more innovation will come to light. Investors will be willing to continually invest because they're getting liquidity along the way instead of 10 years later. Um, and well, it changes that's the, the thing that's the most attractive to me is like, you know, we always talk about the companies that have just failed or are killing it. What about the 90% that are in the middle? Exactly. And I think every time I talk to people that do investments or VCs, incubators, whatever, they're always talking about how their money's stuck in right. these companies exactly. that are doing what I call meddling. You're just like stuck in the middle. You're not really great enough to raise more money and you're not really going away and they get their, their capital gets stuck and they're not able to do new investments and other things. I like the idea of, you know, putting 25 grand into a company and being able to transfer that. Cause right now, if I did that, my legal costs of transferring that might come up to half of that just to sell it to someone else. And then the, not to mention the effort of having to find someone to do it. Right. Well, that's probably the most expensive part. Right. And I think one of the biggest benefits of this, as you've described it before, would be, and the whole, I think the whole reason you set up to do this is as an early stage investor, say a seed stage, series A, that I could sell my my equity to somebody else who's willing to come in, right, and provide liquidity or even liquidity to the founders. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of times, like event solutions, it's like on paper, where at, the, at some point in time, the company was worth like 50 to $100 million. I didn't get paid very much. Like, I had employees that made a lot more money than I did, and I didn't have the liquidity to sell like $100,000 worth of stock would have been awesome at some point in time. And I could see this being really valuable for that. I, Again, as a former VC, my job was to find the next greatest untapped market, and I feel like I found it in my own. As private equity, I think it's the next greatest untapped market. So what is the actual, is there an actual name for this yet? I mean, it's not an ICO. Right, like what? What is the name? Just digital Ooh. shares. What? What is the name of this going to be? Yeah, right. Let's think it up today. I was going to say um, this sounds like a good opportunity to name it. Right. Is there an industry name for this? No, it's never been done before. It's not like I'm following a template. This is, this is what I, you know, this so, is what we do. I mean, so one of the problems with going public for companies is potentially they need a CFO and there's a lot of overhead and reporting and dealing with investors, dealing all, with this the government, of, all this kind of crap, yeah. right? So how does, how does that relate to the idea of having digital shares like this? So in an ideal world, you, and again, going public is for much later stage companies. Um, it's going to be a little more like being on the pink sheets where you're just like, oh, there's sort of information. There's sort of not information. There's, there's something that I've encountered because I've talked to a couple people that are currently getting ready to orchestrate ICOs or something similar. And they're spending huge amounts of money to market the whole thing. 
Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, we talked about in previous episodes with your startup or your platform, just because you build it doesn't mean they're going to come. Like you have to draw people to it. Search, right. search ICO and like the whole Google's just loaded with ads for this is the next great, you know, this or that. And, and so let's take it back down home for a second instead of talking about public markets. Um, how are most companies funded today through local investors? It's I was still say, say through founder deposits <laughs> from my world. Uh, MasterCard and Visa. V- no. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but it's overly a, leveraged bad decisions. VC, Visa card. Yeah, yeah. Right. But it's a, it's a local that. up approach. Okay. So you're going to get funded by, you know, friends, family, angels, and VCs who are local, and then they're going to bring you up chain in theory. So let's talk about how this could play out. The other 90% of companies, right, who are raising capital, need capitalization, and getting outside of banks. Let's, you're going to eat at a restaurant. You really think what they're doing is cool and novel. You open up your phone. You look at them on the exchange. You buy some shares. This is a local thing that most people can relate to instead of talking about, you know. I love, I love that idea. I do, too, right? as an advocate of small and medium-sized business. You know, like, Done. that's the thing. It's like, it just has, it's so difficult and the whole process is so intimidating too. Like I, I love the technology and the concept here. So I, I have a question that I think is probably in the minds of some of our listeners. How is all of this secured? Like meaning like the technology, how do I know someone isn't going to steal my tokens? Right. So we have partnered with a state of the art security company, knowing that that's the best way to do this was not to build our own developers and figure out on top of everything else. We're trying to figure out the security we partnered with a state-of-the-art security firm for just that. That I can't talk too much about yet. Sure. Yeah, but yeah. And it and it builds on top of Ripple, which is a known builds thing, on top of Ripple, which is a, a competitor to Ethereum and okay. other blockchain. Right. It's not even blockchain in its pure form. Um, again, it's arguably better because okay. you have some inefficiency issues as those chains grow right that ethereum is now and bitcoin you know it's interesting bitcoin people think you know because it's becoming so expensive to mine but that was the point right it, there are enough coins out there that you shouldn't you know mining new becomes not as relevant the, the problem with bitcoin is uh, for somebody to even facilitate a transaction it takes like hours and hours and hours of processing power just to like process the transaction right like it's in very inefficient in its ability. Um, you mean mining new or trading no, now? No, 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 to execute a transaction. Like if I go, go buy so something many online. different places and computers that are on and just the bandwidth, like the whole, oh, everything that I don't goes have experience into it. with oh, yeah. scale. Yeah, so when, yeah. You, okay. when you go spend money with Bitcoin, it doesn't happen instantly. It takes like minutes or hours to process. And oh. all the miners are the ones that are also processing those transactions. And so that is the big fundamental flaw with Bitcoin is it doesn't scale. Like it's... It doesn't scale at all. It doesn't scale with today's technology. No. But I do believe that, you know. That's why there's been these um, forks to SegWit and right. uh, Bitcoin Cash. And some of them have been trying to fix these problems. Oh, it's so But cool. the community as a whole is like, uh, I think, a little bipolar and how to solve those problems. But somebody like Ripple and Ethereum have come at it from a different perspective. And they have less kind of baggage to carry around with them. So if they want to fix these issues, they can fix them. And they don't have like this giant community that is carrying around on their back, I think. Yeah. Do you know what's even better than Bitcoin? Matcoin? This Respect the Hustle t-shirt that we're going to give Rachel. Oh, nice. If she can beat Matt 
at rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> oh. um, and yeah. uh, I've never won at rock, paper, I will scissors. probably give it to you anyway, but I just want to see it. Okay. Matt That's really... not okay that I've never won and then he's going to win with me. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'm giving him a chance here. Let's see where All we right. go. You ready? All right, ready. Yes! Go! <laughs> Congratulations, Matt. The streak is over. Okay, I'm going to get you win the t-shirt, but... You should be a gentleman and All give right, it to Rachel. Go. There you go. You're so sweet. I'm wearing it. If you want to get more information about Rachel's platform, if you want to participate in it as a, an investor or a founder, you go to venture360.co or mm -hmm. also.com. Yep. Um, there's also an interview with Rachel and I on the Matt DeCourcy YouTube channel from a while back where we talked about some of this similar stuff. Um, is there other places where we can find some information about you and your business? Um, you know, we have one of the largest pre-launch products right now on Product Hunt too. So you can get in on some good deals if you go through Product Hunt. Um, and you know, the great thing about Venture360 is our subscription is $60 a year right now. So you're going to get your own private capital raising platform. For 60 bucks here. Can, can you tell us a little more about what you're doing on product hunt? Yeah. So we, um, we're testing out our new cat, some of the new features and products that we're launching as far as the capital raising goes, um, through their new ship stuff. So this is all new to them and us. Um, I think we have about 800 subscribers pre-launch, which is pretty good. Um, and they get in on some special deals and perks for going through product hunt. So what is your what is your service though on Product Hunt that you're? It is the capital raising platform. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll make sure to post links to all that in on the startuphustle.xyz website, along with some more information about you and links to Venture Three Hundred and Sixty. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having. Yeah. Me. Thanks a lot for having us. Thanks and, uh, for educating us on so much of this stuff. We're trying to figure it out. I think we're slightly more educated and more confused, but. I I, I'm progress. I'm actually going to go launch like 15 to 20 ICOs <laughs> or whatever we decide to call Just it. see what sticks. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you down the road. Thank you. Thanks 